We uh, moved into that section of Mark that really focuses on who Jesus is. I don't know if you guys can remember back that far, but if you do remember, that answering that question of who Jesus is is what got us into the book of Mark in the first place. If you remember, we were studying through the book of Galatians, and we just kept coming back over and over to the importance of looking at Jesus, of spending time with Him, of letting His character rub off on us. And so when we finished our study of Galatians, we decided to look at the book of Mark and take a look at who this Jesus is. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about what I'm seeing, looking forward to seeing more of who he is. So as we get back into Mark chapter 6, we'll work our way through to about verse 52, from about verse 30. Um, As we do this, keep your eyes open for clues about who this Jesus is really is. Uh, as we go along, I'll stop and point a few clues out to you, but uh, keep watching for them. So let's get into this, to this passage. Starting with verse 30, I'll just read a couple or three verses. And the apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. Well, last week, the apostles went out. They went out preaching. They went out casting out demons. And people listened. And demons left. And now they come back. They're excited, but they're exhausted at the same time. They're like little kids that have been to Disneyland, and they want to tell Jesus all about it. They're feeling particularly good about themselves at this point. Um, there's a little Greek word, asa, that is used a couple times in this verse. It's left untranslated in the English, and it literally means how great. See, they're coming back and they're telling Jesus how great their ministry was, how great their teaching was. Now, they're not being vain. They're just excited. They went out scared and insecure, and they come back thrilled. You know, one of the reasons we... Uh, encourage and promote so strongly and aggressively uh, summer mission projects around here. It's for the, because of the profound effect that these things have on people who go out. They go out afraid and insecure, wondering how God is possibly going to use them, and they come back shouting His praises, telling everybody how faithful He is, how He could use even them. So if you ever have an opportunity or if you can make an opportunity to go on a short-term mission project, do it. It'll change your world. But anyway, these guys come back and they're excited, but they come back and they're, they're spent too. They're exhausted. They're tired. Remember, they went out with no food, no extra money, no extra anything, no provisions. And they had to depend on God every day for everything they needed, for a place to live, for what to eat. And they were constantly being put in stretching situations. They were facing a crowd and having to teach them. They were confronting demon-possessed people. They were, they were extending God's love and healing to, to people who were sick and hurting. Physically and emotionally, this stuff takes it out of you. And so they're tired. They're sure God was faithful. They're delighted. They are wondering at His, his power. But they're also shot. So Jesus says, let's get out of here. Let's take you someplace to be alone. There's still a lot of crowds around, a lot of commotion, a lot of demands on them. And Jesus knew the only way to get away or to to, to rest was to get away, to go someplace else. The word used for rest here means 
to relax, to revive, to restore. Jesus wants to restore their souls. So he says, let's get on a boat and go. And I find it encouraging that Jesus is paying attention to their needs, that he is concerned about the danger of burnout in their lives. And it's not a question of faith. If they only had more faith, they wouldn't get tired like this. They wouldn't need to rest. See, Jesus himself needed rest. There were times he just needed to get away. I also find it assuring that not only is he looking at their need, he's looking at our needs as well. See, God designs a rhythm into our lives. There are times of, of almost unbearable activity and pressure from ministry needs, maybe in a ministry that we've committed ourselves to, or, or, or uh, family needs, or, or needs at the job. But there's also times of quiet and of rest. See, this is the way the pattern is supposed to work. And one of the keys to life is accepting both from our Lord's hand. Unfortunately, we so often will only accept one or the other. Sometimes during those busy times, we go nuts. We resent it. We, we say, life should not be like this. And so we justify all manner of hatefulness toward God, toward our spouses, toward our kids, toward anyone around, anyone around us. We spend so much energy hating that our lives are like this, that we're so busy, that we're even tired than we otherwise would have been. But instead, what we can do is to accept these times as, as times of our Lord building discipline into our lives, building endurance, opportunities to see His faithfulness, chances to see His Spirit love through us when we feel spent and have nothing left to give. See Him able to love even at those times. See, in Christ we're free to rejoice in these times, to trust Him because He's paying attention. But, you know, I think in our culture with our uh, production-oriented identities, what we really have trouble accepting from the Lord's hands is not so much the busy times. It's the times of rest. You know, we say we want them, but at the same time, we schedule ourselves up. We, we uh, refuse to say no. We avoid God and ourselves by keeping so busy. Somehow we think it's unspiritual to, to just get away, to take a break, to just be with our families. Take the phone off the hook. And as a result, we don't develop our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves or our, our friends or our family. Instead, what we develop is backaches, sleeplessness, ulcers, high blood pressure, emotional breakdowns. We just burn out. See, one of the tricks, the keys to life, is learning to accept both, to not refuse either the pressure or the, or the rest. If we refuse the pressure, we end up failing to love people in our frustration, failing to minister, failing to take care of our responsibilities, and we begin to, to suffer the kind of restless, joyless malaise that eats at our, our self, uh, self-respect. On the other hand, when we refuse to take the times of rest, we end up burning out, we lose sight of what's really important in our lives, We end up spiritually empty. Again, the key is to be willing to take each gladly. Let him stretch you. Let him grow you. But then also take those opportunities to rest. Schedule them into your lives. Build them into your schedules. So Jesus is taking these disciples off to rest. And look what happens. Verse 33. 
And the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and they ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, The place is desolate, and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? See, they uh, headed out. Across the lakes, about four miles across this point, about ten miles around. They come to the other side. And here are all these people that they were trying to get away from, running around, waiting to meet the boat. And I don't know about you, but I would have blown a fuse right then. I would have been furious. I would have resented these people. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about the needs of the disciple. They just care about themselves. And I would have resented God at the moment. I would have said, God, I can't... Take this. I need rest. I just said, hey, let's get out of here. Start rowing again. Pull away. Let's go. But look at Jesus' response. Again, his response is selfless. He doesn't focus on his own needs. He's not bound by his own emotions. He starts feeling for them. He feels their hunger, their lostness, their vulnerability. So he reaches out to them. He loves them like... William Barclay puts it, he was moved to the depth of his being with pity. His heart broke for them. His heart ached for for them because of their spiritual need, even more than their physical needs. Because their spiritual needs are really the greater needs. He said they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, incidentally, this is one of your clues. You can file this away. This term, sheep without a shepherd, is a common Old Testament phrase that's used to talk about Uh, Israel's need for the Lord. Just tuck that one away. We'll come back to it. But what was it about them being sheep without a shepherd that really broke Jesus' heart? Why did that cause so much compassion? Well, because Jesus saw these people as they really were. Sheep without a shepherd. A sheep without a shepherd is lost. And they get lost even on paths they use every day. Without help, they'll wander off and get lost. A sheep without a shepherd cannot feed itself. It can't find good food. A sheep without a shepherd is frightened. They clump up in a little pack, afraid of everything around them. And they'll just huddle in that, that clump unless there, there, there's, there's grass around. And they'll start eating that and wander off, get themselves in trouble, get themselves lost. A sheep without a shepherd is vulnerable. It, it, it cannot defend itself. It's easy prey. And you see, Jesus sees that we are like that. People are like that. Without the good shepherd, without the shepherd of our souls, and we're lost. We think we know where we're going in life, but we discover that the road to happiness was someplace else. And we can't feed ourselves spiritually. We, we end up eating the things that, that are poison to us spiritually. We end up feeding on things that won't really build us up, spending all of our time Rather than building our spirits, rather than sowing to the Spirit, just wasting that time. We're afraid. Life frightens us. And we, we cover it up with bravado or, or a veneer of professionalism or maybe with aggressive relational styles. But down deep, underneath it, we are afraid. 
Life frightens us. And you see, Jesus sees straight to the heart of the matter, straight to the heart of us. He knows that in spite of the rough exterior, we are lost little sheep, hungry and scared. So Jesus begins to teach these people. He loves them and he wants to feed them. So he starts teaching them. And this goes on for a while. And the disciples are getting impatient. You've got to remember, they're tired. They're hungry. The reason they came over from the other side is that they hadn't had time to eat yet. And this teaching is going on and on into the evening. So they interrupt Jesus and they say, Jesus, okay, listen, let's send them all home. It's getting late. Send them back where they can get buy something to eat. That sounds like a reasonable suggestion. And Jesus says, you feed them. That's a totally unreasonable suggestion. They, they retort. You know, here they, 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 they come with this constructive idea. And Jesus comes back with this obnoxious idea. And, you know, and their response is, okay, right, we got $20,000 to feed all of these people. You see, 200 denarii was, was a year's wage. There are 5,000 people there. These disciples aren't exaggerating. Take 5,000 people, run down to McDonald's, buy them a Big Mac, order fries and a Coke. You're over $4 with tax. Four times 5,000, that's $20,000. That's a lot of food. They don't have this kind of money. So, Jesus asked them, verse 38, How many loaves do you have? Go and look. And they went and found out. And they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them to recline in groups on the green grass. And they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving to them, or giving, giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up the twelve full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Jesus asked them how many fish they have. They don't know. They go check. They come back. We say, we've got these five loaves and two fish. I realize these aren't big old French bread loaves. These are little flat, little dinner roll type rolls, loaves. And these fish aren't 100-pound halibut. They're dried up little sardine affairs. And here are these 12 men holding these five loaves, two little fish. I mean, this was their dinner. And it wasn't enough to even feed them very well. And here are 5,000 people. And they think, this is ridiculous. This is silly. But Jesus tells them, have them lie down on the green grass in eating groups. The disciples say, okay. And they go and they have everybody lie down. Now, there's a couple other clues right here that I want to point out to you. I'll just file these away with the last one. First, in verse 39, the term recline in the NASB, or if you have an NIV version, it says to sit down, literally means to lie down. Jesus has them lie down. And that makes sense because that's how they used to eat in those days. They would lie down. But just file that away. It means to lie down. And the second clue is also in this verse. It's in the grass. The green grass. Now, why green grass? Mark is by far the shortest of the Gospels. He doesn't waste words. He doesn't give us a lot of details in his descriptions. And in fact, the only other two places I could think of in the book of Mark where color is mentioned at all are one in the transfiguration when Jesus' clothes glowed white. And secondly, at the resurrection when the angel was wearing white clothes. Those are the only two places 
that I could think of that color is mentioned at all, except for here, the green grass. Again, file that away, and we'll come back to it. But Jesus has them all sit in eating groups, 50 or 100. And he takes these loaves, he looks to heaven, he blesses them, and he breaks them, and he starts handing them out to the disciples. Now, each of the disciples probably had a little basket, a little lunchbox that they would carry with them. It's called kafino, kind of like the word coffin. These kafino, all Jews carried. In fact, Romans used to make fun of the Jews because they carried their little kafino. The reason they would carry these is because when they were traveling, especially in Gentile areas like this one, they were never sure they could get a hold of food that had been properly prepared according to Jewish law. So they'd always carry their little basket with a little bit of kosher food in it just in case. So anyway, these disciples have their kofinos, and Jesus is handing out the bread and the fish, and they're putting it in their basket, and they take these baskets and hand it to the people sitting in these groups. They pass it around, pass the baskets back to the disciples. Everybody ate and was satisfied. Actually, they were stuffed. The word here for satisfied is used in Revelation 19 to refer to the vultures who were gorged on the meat. See, everybody had all the food they could want. They lean back, they pat their stomachs, they say, that was great. And the disciples go get their baskets. They have 12 baskets left over. There's 12 disciples. Each one of their baskets are full. There's more food in their basket now than they started with. They get more than everybody else. Now, there's several observations I want to make about all of this. First of all, whose idea was it to feed all of these people? Who wanted to do this in the first place? And it wasn't the disciples. They they wanted to get rid of these people. It was Jesus' idea. He's the one that had compassion on the people. He's the one whose heart ached for them. Not the disciples, but the disciples are the ones that have to come up with the bread and the fish. They're the ones that have to organize everything. They're the ones that have to distribute. They're doing all the work. Now, I thought about titling this section, Why Take an Aspirin When God Gets a Headache. In our family, my wife Becky is very sensitive, very observant. She'll notice when my daughters need me to spend some time with them. She'll notice things around the house that need some attention. She'll notice somebody in the church who's hurting could use a call. And I won't notice these things. As long as the TV works and there's plenty of munchies in the house, I'm fat and happy. I'm just not put together that very sensitive. But she is. And she will gently, graciously, in a non-pressuring way, bring these things to my attention. And even though she is very gracious and gentle... I used to resent it. You know, how come if she sees it, I got to do something about it? It just didn't seem fair. But over the years, I have learned to greatly, greatly appreciate that because I want to love people. I'm just not put together so I notice their needs. She does. And as a result of listening to her, learning from her, I become sensitive. I have the opportunity to love people like I really do want to do. Well, see, our relationship with God should be very much like this. He sees needs and he calls us to meet them. Just like Jesus saw a need and he called the disciple to, to meet it. See, and our, we may not feel very strongly about these needs, but he does. He sees the need of the untaught, wants them to be taught in Sunday schools. He sees the need and wants to bring the gospel to other cultures. 
He wants to, to take care of the widows and the fatherless. He wants to reach the hurting and the lost, the confused. And He wants to do that through us. He wants to use us to reach them, to love them, to heal them, to feed them. And a lot of times we won't have any felt motivation other than the fact that God has told us He wants these things in His Word. And we'll look at the problem and we'll feel very much like the disciples. We'll say, man, I'm tired. I'm hungry. I don't have anything to give. We'll look around and it's just overwhelming. We'll see that single mom who who needs somebody to come over and help around the house. And as we think about it, we think, man, there's so many needs here. I spend my life there and I won't even make a dent in it. We think about the financial needs of the church or of missions, the kingdom, and we say, what good is my $10 or $100 or $1,000? It's just a drop in the bucket. It's not going to do any good. We look around at work and we see how messed up people are. And as we think about reaching out, we say, it's futile. Man, why try? It's impossible. We see a lonely friend who's struggling with some emotional problem. And we say, God, help him. And God says, you help him. And we say, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Man, this guy needs a 24-hour friend. He needs new parents, a new job, a new morals, a new theology. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. God, I don't have anything to give. And God says, what do you have? So we go check. I say, well, I got an hour on Saturdays. He says, well, go spend an hour with him on Saturdays. And God takes that hour and he multiplies it. He multiplies the effect of that time. He takes our simple words and he uses them profoundly. See, we look around our society. We see the the needs of the, the mentally ill. We look at our own family and we see how huge the needs are. We see a friend who is, is facing illness or death. We see the need for missionaries all over the world. And it's just overwhelming. We say, God, all I've got is five loaves and two fish. And that's not even enough to feed me. If I give these up, I'll have nothing. And I'm hungry, God. And we resent the, the implication that we should even try. If we try, we're just going to get used up. We're just going to get burned out, thrown away. But what happened when the disciples stepped out in obedience to the Lord? And did they get used up? No, they fed 5,000 people. And they got back their baskets full. They got more out of it than anybody else did. See, and that's always the case. When we step out in obedience to the Word, we step out in obedience to the Lord, and we get more out of it than anybody else does. If we begin to step out... To meet those needs in our family that just overwhelm us. To reach out to the mentally ill. Just spend some time at at, at a group home doing something like that. Starting a Bible study at work. Whatever we do, whatever God calls us to, when we step out in obedience to Him, and we get so much more out of it than anybody else. See, His plan isn't to use us up and throw us away. We are not disposable. We are precious. His plan is to fill our cup to overflowing, to fill us up. So what he asks of us is not the much that we don't have. All he asks is the little that we have. And he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he multiplies it, and he does wonderful things through the little that we have. Well, anyway, let's take a look at the next story. Starting in verse 45. 
And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And Jesus, uh, first thing he does is he puts the disciples in the boat and sends them off. Uh, he sees that they have had about as much as they can handle, and he sends them off. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, listen, I'm the important one here. You guys wrap things up, finish up around here. I'm going to go rest. Now, Jesus again looks out for the needs of others. But he also looks out for his own needs. After he sent the disciples off, after he has said goodbye to the crowds, he goes off by himself. He gets that time of rest. You see the rhythm here. He takes care of his own need to be away, to be alone with the Father, to be refreshed, to be rested, to be revived. He goes up on the hill, begins praying, spending time with the Father. Well, as he's up there praying, looks out over the water, and this is what he sees, verses 47, 48. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and intended to pass them by. Well, what he sees is these guys out there struggling. It's about three in the morning of what turned into a very long day, and things are not going well for these disciples. They're out there fighting. They're out there working hard, struggling against the wind, rowing and rowing and rowing, and they're making no headway. They're frustrated. Now, is that the way it's supposed to be? I thought when you're in the center of God's will, and things glide. The water is smooth for you. But these guys are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And the waves are against them, and they're fighting, and they're getting nowhere. Man, that must have been frustrating. That must have really bristled them. Fortunately, that's the way it works, people. (laughs) A lot of times when we want to do what God has called us to do, things do get worse. They get harder. And things start to, to, we start to struggle in our families. Work gets rough. Our schedules blow up. It's frustrating. It's confusing. Those are also the times that Jesus shows us more of himself. Anyway, these guys are out there struggling. And we're casually told that Jesus just started walking on the water toward them. You know, like this was an everyday thing. Well, the disciples did not take it as an everyday thing. Verse 49, 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, or literally, I am. Do not be afraid. See, they see him walking on the water. They think they're seeing a ghost, and they cry out. Cry out nothing. They were screaming. Now, these big, strong fishermen are screaming in terror because they're seeing a ghost. And they're sure they're going to die. See, back then it was widely known that if you saw a spirit while you were out in the sea, you were about to drown. They thought they were in the valley of the shadow of death. This was it. They're going to die. And so they're screaming. They're terrified. And Jesus says, hey, relax. It's me. And he walks over, climbs in the boat, pretty as you please. And they go, they are amazed. They are astounded. 
verses 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Now, wait a minute. We're told that they were astounded because they hadn't figured it out from the loaves, because their hearts were hard. That doesn't sound right to me. I mean, it doesn't sound like their hearts were hard. Of course they're amazed. I'm amazed and I'm just reading it. How could they not be amazed when this guy comes walking across the water to them? Why does that mean their hearts were hardened? Well, first of all, realize that the word for astonished means to be totally blitzed, to be overwhelmed, to be freaked out entirely. It's used for for being out of your mind. They're disoriented. They're lost. And Mark is telling us there's been something going on with the the feeding of the 5,000 that they should have picked up on, some clues that they should have put together. And if they had, they would have seen something about who it was they were dealing with. And sure, they would have still been impressed. They would have even been amazed, but they wouldn't have been overwhelmed. They wouldn't have been lost. And the fact that they had not put it together just shows us that their hearts were hard. Now, now the the term hard-hearted probably means something a slightly different to us than the the biblical idiom. Now, for us, a hard-hearted person is somebody who is very insensitive, uncaring, even cruel. Somebody who, when it comes to the gospel, is opposed to it, hates anybody who believes it, is just hard. Well, that is probably included in the biblical concept of hard-hearted. Like the Pharisees, they were openly hostile to the gospel. They were hard-hearted. But here we're told, so were the disciples. And they weren't openly hostile. They had been preaching it themselves. All they had done was fail to stop and put the clues together. Think about who it was they were dealing with. See, there's a lot of people in our society who are just going blindly on past the evidence, past the facts of who Jesus is, blindly past what that means for their lives. And these, realize, are are often good people, sensitive people, kind people, not somebody who we would call hard-hearted. But because they don't stop and look at the evidence, they are what the Bible calls hard-hearted. Okay, what is it that the disciples should have figured out? What is it if they had stopped, paid attention, put it all together, they would have realized from the feeding of the 5,000? Well, let me go back over some of the clues we saw. First of all, remember that the people that Jesus fed were like sheep without a shepherd. And that he made them lie down on the green grass by the still waters of the lake. And he gave them all the food they could want. A lot of you are smiling. A lot of you are figuring out what we're talking about here. What? Realize the Old Testament was the only Bible these guys had. What is the most well-known passage of the whole Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the Lord's Prayer. In the Old Testament, it's what everybody was just now whispering. The 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 23. This Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament, the shepherd of Israel. And as these disciples put these clues together, the clues were obvious, the clues were intentional. As they put it together, they would have realized who it was they were dealing with. As they got into that boat and thought they were in the valley of the shadow of death, they would have known they had nothing to fear because He was with them. You see, the disciples looked at each of the things Jesus did and they were impressed. They marveled because they were impressive, marvelous things. But they never looked beyond it to see the whole picture. And so often we do the same. We're impressed by everything God does. We're grateful for it. We thank Him for it. But we don't step back and say, what does this mean about who He is? What He's like? How I am free now to respond to Him and to trust Him. See, if the disciples had put it together, there's a lot they would have understood. Let me help you guys out. You probably don't know your Old Testaments as well as these disciples did. So what I would like to do is just read two passages from the Old Testament. Have you listened to them? I won't make any comment. But let you figure it out. Let you see who it is you are dealing with. Help, let you put it together. See what that means about how you are to respond to Him, what role he, what place He should have in your life, how well He is to be trusted. So let me just read these, you listen, and put it together. Starting with Ezekiel 34, verse 5 and 11 through 16. And my sheep were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his flock in the day when he's among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places of the earth to where they are scattered on a gloomy day. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all of the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights. There they will lie down in good grazing ground. They will feed on the rich pasture. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind the broken, and strengthen the sick. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and then 9 through 14, and then 21 through 31. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up and do not fear, says the, say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with his might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense is before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 
and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by measure, weighed a mountain in a balance, the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who is his counselor and has informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice, taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely breathes on them and they wither. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom shall you liken me that I shall be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This same Jesus is he whom you serve. Let's pray. Lord, we so often fail to realize who it is we are dealing with. We notice the things you do and we thank you, but we fail to recognize your power, your goodness, your greatness. We panic at every new challenge because we've lost sight that you are Yahweh, the great I Am, that you hold all power in your hand, that nothing escapes your notice. Lord, we panic because we have such a small idea of who you are. And we fail to trust you because we forget how much you love us, how tender you are with us, that you want to pick us up and hold, you, hold us in your arms like little lambs. Lord, open our eyes to who you really are, how much you really do love us. We just pray this in your name. Amen.